Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Andy Knoll with us, a professor of natural history at Harvard University. He's been a member of the Harvard faculty since 1982, serving as both professor of biology and professor of earth and planetary sciences. Professor Knoll's research focuses on the early evolution of life, Earth's environmental history, and especially the interconnections between the two. He has conducted field research on five continents and for two decades served on the science team for NASA's MIR mission to Mars. Andy, welcome to the program. Looking forward to this. Thanks, George. Glad to be here. A brief history of Earth. Did you know the late Dr. John Mack, who was out at Harvard? No, I didn't. No. He was a great guy. He, uh, he investigated alien abduction cases, but uh, his credentials at Harvard gave him the, the really the impetus for people to wake up and go, wow, this is something. But die tragically, uh, got hit by a car stepping off a curb. Oh, geez. Sad story. But uh, how do we know that planet Earth is four and a half to 4.6 billion years old? Yeah, that's a good question. And it all has to do with radioactivity. Uh, it turns out that there are many different forms of the elements that make up the Earth that are radioactive, which means that they break down through time to another product. Uh, famously, some forms of uranium break down through time to lead. And if we know the rate at which that happens, and that can be measured in the lab, then the various minerals uh, in our planet can be used as clocks. And the oldest materials that we have, which actually speak to the origin of the Earth and the solar system, are meteorites. And those are the ages that uh, people get when they apply these methods to those. Kind of paint us a picture, if you can, when the solar system and the universe was forming. This, you know, I do a lot of flying. This is a big planet. And just to try to comprehend how it was formed and how it got together is just unbelievable. What happened? Well, it's, it's, again, it's just a great story. Uh, we know, uh, both from observations of other parts of, of the universe and what we can deduce from our own solar system, that a little more than four and a half billion years ago, there was, because of gravity, various gases, dust, etc., uh, started to collapse uh, in our neighborhood, and most of that went into the sun, mostly hydrogen, and as that got denser and denser, it got hotter and hotter and started to give off light and, and heat itself. And then, interestingly, all the dust that was arrayed around it, again, because of gravity, started to accrete into larger and larger pieces, and eventually there were only, you know, eight or nine of those left, and our planet is one of them. So we basically came together just because of, you know, the standard physics of uh, the universe. Where did the dust come from in the first place? Well, that's another good question. <laughs> and at the end of the day, you go back to the Big Bang. Um, well, we, again, astronomers estimate that not quite 14 billion years ago, we have this amazing expansion of the stuff, if you will, of, of the universe. And again, that started coalescing into uh, stars. Uh, the first stars were almost entirely hydrogen. Uh, but 
the interesting thing about stars is that those are basically the foundries of elements. So within the interior of stars, uh, this hydrogen started to combine and make other elements. Uh, some of the heavier ones you need things like a supernova that have tremendously high pressures and temperatures. But through time, and in our case, over nearly the first 10 billion years of, of the universe's history, more and more of these heavier elements that make up dust were formed and accreted. And so in a very real sense, you, I, and everything else on Earth is stardust. Is it possible that the Big Bang was some massive size object? I mean, massive, that blew up and, you know, remnants of it scattered throughout the universe? Yeah, that's exactly what uh, astronomers tell us. Uh, the idea is that in the beginning, at least the beginning of time as we can, can measure it, uh, you have this incredibly tiny, dense uh, dot, if you will, and for reasons unknown, this just begins a, a tremendously rapid uh, expansion uh, around 14 billion years ago. And so, what you know, uh, I, what I love about astronomy is that it's very hard to know what if anything came before the Big Bang. It's very hard to know right. exactly what drove it, but you know, because of star of light. We can actually see a record of much of what came afterward. We're with Professor of Natural History at Harvard University, Andy Knoll. Andy, when you look at uh, the formation of early Earth and you look at the incredible situation throughout the universe where there were many planets all over the place, all forming the same way, you mentioned gravity. Is that the key to all of this? Yeah, gravity is really the architect of planets and, and other, all the other bodies we see in the universe. Without gravity, none of this would have happened, would it? I, that's probably correct, yeah. Anything that puzzles you about the formation? Well, as, as I said, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always curious about this whole idea that there is a beginning, uh, and I, I certainly think the, the science behind the idea of the Big Bang is, is very sound, but that leaves us in complete ignorance of, you know, what was there genuinely at the beginning. So all this dust gets together, starts spinning around, spinning around. What makes it coagulate? Again, gravity. Uh, the nice thing about gravity is that the strength of gravity depends on really the weight of the materials and their, their distance from each other. So as soon as you start getting some localized place where the dust comes together and starts to accrete, that becomes an attractor for more objects. And so some you know, primordial event in the history of our solar system gave us a little kernel that started then to accrete dust and then accrete larger and larger uh, pieces of, of material, and that became us. And then how does all the ocean water come into effect? How does that happen? Well, again, if, if you look at what are basically the building blocks of planets, which uh, we see in the form of uh, meteorites today, there are uh, a number of classes of meteorites that actually contain a fair amount of water. Uh, most of it's actually chemically bound to uh, uh, other minerals, but the, most people would agree that the water and all the material that goes into air and life 
came to the Earth largely by meteorites, probably with a dollop of cometary material as well. And without water, the primordial soup, I think, to jumpstart life, it would not have a It wouldn't have happened, would it? No, that's ex- that's exactly right. Uh, as near as we can tell, water is the key environmental agre- ingredient to allow everything that we see around us to come into being. When do you think life started on the planet? Well, you know, we can get some constraints on that from the rock record itself, and we can go back to rocks that are three and a half billion years old, and there's a you know, a number of distinct chemical and, and physical signatures of life. This is microbial life, bacteria. It's not dinosaurs or anything like that. Right, right. And then as we go back from there, the record gets very spotty and scarce. And so what we can really say is we, as we go backward toward the beginning of Earth history, we actually run out of rocks to look at before we run out of evidence for life. So I'd say Basically speaking, life, Earth has been a, a biological planet for nearly all of its history. Taking God out of the equation, Andy, how does life start from nothing? Well, again, there, one can do experiments that uh, at least give us some insights into this. There's a famous experiment done in the 1950s called the Miller-Urey experiment, where they just took a flask, put a mixture of gases in it, natural gas, ammonia, water, and then put a spark through it. And that was meant to s- simulate a lightning going through an, an early atmosphere on Earth. And, you know, you do that, and any high school kid can do this experiment. You find that some brown gunk starts to accumulate on the walls of the flask. And when you look at that, it has things like amino acids in it, which are the building blocks of proteins. So there's been, you know, 70 or 80 years now of, of work where people have shown that it is quite plausible to think that the building blocks of life could have uh, formed naturally under conditions that were present on the early Earth. Is there anything out there that people have had wrong about Earth's history? Oh, yeah. In the long run, uh, lots of things. Uh, we, we keep learning, uh, you know, in, in my lifetime, the whole way we think about the physical engine of the Earth changed. Uh, there was a, a, a famous German meteorologist early about 100 years ago named Alfred Wegener, who had this idea, thought to be crazy at the time, that continents moved around the surface. Uh, he called it continental drift. And uh, pretty much most of the sort of snooty academics in the Northern Hemisphere thought he was crazy. But once we started understanding how you know, the ocean, the, the seafloor works and things like this, it became clear that to a first approximation, Wagner was correct. We now have this, this whole way of thinking about mountains, volcanoes, earthquakes is rooted in something called plate tectonics. So, yeah, I mean, like any science, we learn, we rethink things. Late physicist Stephen Hawking wrote a book called A Brief History of Time. You have a book called A Brief History of Earth. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, um, you know, <laughs> in a sense, uh, Hawking was talking about largely the uh, earlier events in uh, the history of the universe, and that certainly figures into our narrative sure. on Earth, because that's where all the, you know, the, the elements that we we consist of and have around us came to be. For me, it was just, you know, having 
worked among the rocks for a professional lifetime. I just wanted to step back and construct the whole arc of our planet's history for two reasons. One, in, in the hope that it can, uh, you know, help people to understand, you know, really the, the, the magic and the majesty of how everything around us came to be, but also to use that deep history to help people to appreciate the fragility of our present moment. What do you think uh, the asteroid belt uh, is, or what might have happened? Well, the asteroid belt is material that, for the most part, formed as bodies in the in the uh, early history of the solar system, and it's the, the the type of building blocks from which Earth accreted. But for the most part, that material never accreted, and it either never accreted into a larger body, or in some cases, uh, it started to accrete, accrete into larger bodies, and then they collided and just blew them to smithereens. Right. So in a sense, that's, that's kind of the detritus of the early solar system. Whenever asteroids zoom past the planet, or all the remnants of asteroid strikes that we see on the moon that we've been hit before in the early formation. Did they come from that asteroid belt? Well, a, a lot of them did. Uh, yeah, today, uh, you're, you're right. I mean, we get hit by, fortunately, tiny meteorites on a pretty much an hourly basis. Uh, and every once in a while, there's a larger one that's going to grab your attention. And most of, most of that material comes from the asteroid belt, yeah. It's, it's, it's dramatic how that happens. And a lot of times they're tracking asteroids, uh, Andy, but they don't find them until they've gone past us. That's not, that's not very sobering. Well, you're right. I mean, NASA has long had uh, a pretty serious program to try and map the orbits of, of asteroids, but you're, but you're right. Um, you can't just scan the corners of the solar system and, and hope that you'll see everything. So, yeah, we, we do. Fortunately, everything we've found since that program began uh, doesn't come closer than about 10,000 miles. But, you know, you can just go out to Meteorite Crater in Arizona, and you'll see, well, sometimes pretty big things do hit us. You're a professor, you're a scientist. Do you find it difficult sometimes not to bring intelligent design into this discussion? Uh, no, I, I don't think so, because, you know, one of the, the rules of science, if you will, is that you have to deal with things that are, you know, can be tested or are replicable. And so I, I, I think we know enough about physical processes that... Um, as Laplace told Napoleon, you know, he has no need for other hypotheses. And again, that, that is not a statement that there is or isn't a deity. It simply says that that is not something that science can really evaluate. All we can evaluate is, you know, the physical replicable processes that we see around us. I explain what the core is in the center of the planet. Okay, well, when Earth started to come together and accrete, it got hot. And it got hot for two reasons. One is there's actually heat of accretion as all of these uh, you know, bits of material come together. And then early in the history of the solar system, uh, the sort of inventory of radioactive uh, materials was much higher than it is today. So this growing Earth starts to get hot. And it gets hot enough that it actually melts. And when it melts, 
the heavy stuff goes into the center. That's mostly iron with a few other things. And that's the material of the core, whereas lighter materials then became the mantle on top of it. That's fascinating with with all of this. And how did you get involved in this? And, and I mean, when you were a kid, were you interested in this kind of science? Well, you know, I, I grew up in the Pennsylvania Dutch country in a very rural setting. And I, I did, as, as a kid and a high schooler, enjoy collecting fossils. But to be honest, you know, where I came from, you know, I'd never met a scientist or a PhD or anything like that. And so I didn't really know about a career like the one I had. And so because I was reasonably good at math, I went to engineering school and then being really brilliant, I did, I found out at the end of my freshman year, I didn't want to be an engineer. And so I just took a bunch of science courses and really loved a biology course, really loved a geology course. And probably in the only epiphany I've ever had in my life, I was sitting in my dorm room one night and I was like, geez, you know, these really aren't separate subjects. In many ways, earth and life are opposite sides of the same coin. And after that, I was gone. That was it. Why do we have earthquakes and volcanoes, Andy? Okay, well, again, this has to do largely with uh, what I mentioned a little earlier called plate tectonics. And that is the idea that there are places on the Earth today where new crust, that is the material at the surface of the planet, is forming. Uh, if you drained all the water of the, out of the Atlantic Ocean, for example, you would find that there is a major mountain belt running right through the middle of the ocean, uh, far, far beneath the surface of the sea. And that is so-called uh, a, a ridge, and new crust is being created there. Now, it, it huh. stands to reason, then, if you're making new crust and the Earth isn't getting larger, there have to be places where that crust is disappearing. And those are called subduction zones, where the crust just, you know, basically breaks and... and breaks apart. Uh, goes, yeah, well, it goes down back into the Earth. And subduction zones, you can see on a map, because as that crust starts subducting beneath the surface, it melts. We get volcanoes. Is, is it like a caldera? Well, a caldera is a is a, a big blown apart. Uh, it's like an inverted vol volcano or something, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Well, think about you know if you look at the Aleutian Islands or Japan or Indonesia and that you, you not only have a volcano, you have whole lines of volcanoes. Yellowstone has one. Yeah, that's right. And all of that stuff has to do with this subduction of crust back into the mantle. And it's also the friction of that process that causes earthquakes. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.